Hey, it's Alex Pearson on point. And today on the podcast, we start by getting the latest on we now that the charity is pulling out of Canada. What does it mean for the political side of this? The federal investigations will take you through that and where Craig and Mark Kielberger, well, they, what they say doesn't really add up. Then for the World Suicide Prevention Day, we're going to be speaking with Senator Patrick Brazo, who talks about his experience of surviving a suicide attempt and how his life has turned around. And we speak with a woman who started gender reveal parties and who is now telling people, would you stop lighting things on fire? And this of course has to do with that massive wildfire in California still burning and started by a crazy gender reveal explosion. Let's get to it. wish that the certain politicians had recused themselves, but there's no one we blame. This was a pandemic, it was a political process. I, I just wish in all the politics, people thought about what was being lost. Yeah, there's plenty of blame for We Charity's demise and the kooky Kielberger brothers can start looking at themselves. Alex Pearson here with you on this Thursday, September 10th, and I watched the interview with the Kielberger brothers. They sat down with CTV, which is where you heard that uh, piece of audio. And you got Craig and Mark's spin on what happened. But, you know, my instant takeaway is that, you know, while the brothers may think this cleans things up by talking, it does not. In fact, it leaves a whole bunch more questions. But what is clear is that the Kielbergers see themselves as the victims here, you know, because it was all about the children, gosh darn it. And they just wanted to help Canadians in their time of need not angry at anything, I'm angry at the situation. You know, 25 years of incredible passion, um, incredible impact, the opportunity to, to, to change lives, an amazing team who've been there throughout that process. Um, and then politics took over. So politics took over because these two brothers, you know, very actively played politics with their beloved We Charity. And it was the Kielbergers who pushed for this deal. You know, they were the ones who approached top liberal MPs. They were the ones who had calls with Minister Bardish Chagger. I mean, she denies this, but documents show that she gave them suggestions on how to, you know, put the proposal together to get this near billion dollar deal. I mean, there were personal emails between the Ministry of Finance to Bill Morneau directly. I mean, they were calling each other besties. So politics took over because the Kielbergers themselves played politics using their own very personal ties to the government to get this student grant deal that would have landed them $43 million to run. And yet here, as you see, Craig claims they didn't even know what the dollar amount to the deal was. You want to hear something funny about how rushed this was? We didn't know the size of it until the press announced it. That's when we found out the size. And I wish, in hindsight, that the government had a different procurement process, and I wish we pushed them to have a different procurement process. But in the middle of a pandemic, we were asked to help, and we said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not true. Because the phone didn't just ring. I mean, this was not a favor. Uh, you just need to look at the documents, which show the Kielbergers aggressively lobbied the government to get this deal. I mean, aggressively, even though they're not registered to lobby. They're not allowed to do that. 
And so while that was also going on, behind the scenes, before the scandal even broke, they abruptly fired their board. Remember that? They laid off hundreds of employees. They moved millions of dollars around to a private numbered company and were in breach of bank covenants. So look, they can claim as they are that they had no direct line to the prime minister. In fact, never talked to him. Don't even have an email. Yet Trudeau appeared at dozens of wee days. His mother, brother got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. His wife, Sophie, was an ambassador and Craig Kielberger sits on a board for Elections Canada. So, you know, forgive me if I don't buy what they are selling, because it's just simply not to be believed. And then there's the money they were paid before the deal was finalized. Because don't forget, they were paid $33 million, which they say was paid back. So that apparently is now paid back, but that they're going to eat $5 million in losses that they suffered because of this thing. I mean, what kind of charity do you know that can simply, you know, eat that kind of money and that kind of loss because it's just the right thing to do, as he says? There was no opportunity for profit. A charity doesn't need to make a profit doing something. Even if just our expenses were covered, it was still the right thing to do because it would help 100,000 students do service work. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. You got to remember, this is an organization that had deals with banks, media partners, airlines, on and on it goes. They rub shoulders with the rich and famous, world leaders, Oprah Winfrey, those kinds of people. They hold tens of millions in real estate and the charity closes. I mean, why didn't they cash in some of their real estate? I mean, if they wanted to save the charity of we, cash in some of that expensive Toronto real estate, it's up, what, $50 million? That would make sense. But no, instead, they're just going to close the We Charity in Canada, where it was invented. It was born. That's where it all, this is where it all started. But I'm curious, I mean, how is it that the Kielbergers are going to still be able to run these charities in the U.S. and other countries also hit by a pandemic? So wh- why are they shutting down there? Oh, because there's no scandal? I don't know. And why aren't they shutting down over a dozen of these other branches to the organization? Because there's a huge number of other arms to this thing. The profit side of it, me to we, there's the me to we trips, the me to we foundation. There's all these numbered companies. I mean, on and on it goes. But all of that is going to remain business as usual. And so, you know, I sat down and watched that interview. And I think if they thought that that was going to clear things up, it certainly leaves us with a whole lot more questions that still need to be answered. And so that's why the opposition's demanding that the Kielbergers hand over documents to the finance committee. And they said that they would give them. They said today, late today, yes, they're still coming. Well, okay, but you're obligated to do that. And as Pierre Polyevra reminded them today, hey, you can run, but you can't hide. But there's a lot about this that just doesn't really add up. It just doesn't. There have been other scandals with charities. There was a Red Cross scandal, the Tainted Blood scandal. And that, I mean, you you don't get a bigger hit than that, but they managed to survive, rebuild, uh, regenerate their reputation. So why why is we now just cutting out and, and leaving? A lot of it just doesn't make sense. But I have to be, I have to be honest. I'm not sad that the we charity will be no more. Not because I, you know, yes, it teaches kids about volunteerism. Okay. But it reminds me too much of a cult. 
and they had a very, very, very far, far hand into the education. They had, they had part in the curriculum. I'm sorry, I don't want the Kielbergers designing class curriculum. It's already too social justice for my liking. So I don't have any issue. The fact that the kids won't be going off to these evangelical type, you know, uh, love fests. I find them a little weird. And, and frankly, I mean, the whole term volunteerism, I think that's the greatest damage by this whole thing. Because a program was developed to pay kids to volunteer completely changes the purpose of charity. I mean, why, why? I mean, charity is about giving. And if we have to pay people to do it, then it's not charity. And it just hurts all these other charities that uh, haven't done anything wrong, but they get guilt by association. And certainly a whole bunch of trust has been lost because if you don't think your money's going to the charity or the cause you believe in, you're not going to give. And so those tainted by we and upset with we and angered by we, maybe they just won't give to any other charity. So there's been a lot of fallout on that, on this, not just to the charity and the organization itself, but to the charity industry. And then of course the political damage. And does the politics go away on this? No. Not by a long shot. There's a reason. Most of the documents we've already seen are all blacked out. Blacked out, as we are told, by those in the Prime Minister's office. And again, they're not supposed to do that stuff. But we will talk about this. Uh, Michael Barrett will join me at 7 o'clock to uh, talk about how that investigation goes. Uh, other thing that happened today, um, maybe this guy's just got the worst luck in the world. I don't know. Poor Bill Morneau, man. He just keeps getting thrown under the bus, but um, breaking Elections Canada rules today. So he'll be fined a whole $300. But like, when, when did politics... When did it veer away from serving the people? When did it become all about serving yourself? Because that's, that is everything wrong with politics today. It's not a huge violation, whatever, but Dean Del Mastro, you know, went to jail for a good long time because he got too many donations. And no one else seems to get the same kind of, uh, you know, punishment. But again, there's different penalties for different people, I guess, different parties, but it's just never ending. Certainly with uh, Bill Morneau, and it just seems to be a, an ongoing theme with the Trudeau government. It happens so often, we just kind of laugh it off now after a while. I think that politics is a very tough sport, and I'll acknowledge our naivety in politics on this, that when we got the phone call from a government bureaucrat to launch a national service program, we never anticipated how the procurement process would unfold and we never anticipated in the middle of a minority government that a political firestorm would unfold. And we were naive. We own that. We were very naive. Mm-hmm. Palais. The Kielbergers are not naive, and neither are they dumb. In fact, they're very highly educated, and they're very well-connected because they've had access to world leaders, rock stars, celebrities, and influencers for over two decades. I mean, these guys are no dummies. So to hear them say, well, we were, we were naive to how politics works. Yeah, you know, we just wanted to put the children first is simply impossible to believe. They knew exactly what they were doing when they aggressively lobbied this government they've been cozy with for far too long. And they know that they're not allowed to do that. But just because they've closed down the Canadian side of the charity does not mean the scandal goes away. In fact, 
I think there's a lot more to the story. Michael Barrett joining us now. He is the ethics critic. He also uh, sat on the finance committee until it was, of course, abruptly prorogued, stopping us from learning anything else. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on. So there is the charity business side to this whole thing, and then there is the political side. And so they're closing down, um, you know, of the the charity part of the organization. I mean, it doesn't make this thing go away. I mean, they they came out today and said, you know, we'll get you those documents uh, that they were asked for uh, about, what, a month ago now? Um, You know, what's the holdup? Right, and when when they appeared at committee, uh, a planned, scheduled appearance that they accepted. Uh, they came and, and weren't able to provide the details. And their go-to answer was, uh, "We'll, you know, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you." And uh, when the uh, session was prorogued and the committees were shut down, um, so too was their interest in, in providing those documents. And uh, it's it's pretty rich to hear the clip that you played, where. <laughs> Uh, the gentleman claimed to be naive. You're you're absolutely right. These guys have been steeped in politics since they were 12, meeting world leaders, and they know their way uh, around uh, around these processes. They're they're um, skilled operators. They were able to um, take their take their um, business, this we organization that was in some trouble, some financial trouble, and start putting proposals, shopping for for business from this government going minister to minister and top bureaucrat to top bureaucrat and turned it around into a $43.5 million payday for their organization to administer a half a billion dollar program. And what was the hook? Well, of course, Justin Trudeau's family uh, received half a million dollars from them, and they'd given Bill Morneau a $40,000 free vacation. Uh, So, you know, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. Not to mention um, they were generous enough to uh, eat a $5 million loss. They said they suffered because of that, which to a charity, losing $5 million would be uh, the end for any of them. So I don't know. I, I don't understand this generosity. I mean, they, they said, well, it's just the right thing to do. I mean, you heard the the interview. Um, you know, I don't know what questions it raises for you, but there were a number of times when I shook my head and said, are you kidding me? You think we buy this? Because, you know, when, when the phone rang, well, the phone didn't ring. You had already made several calls to Bardish Chagger, to, to, uh, Minister Ng, to Bill, um, Bill Morneau. I mean, they were already talking and they were calling each other besties. So, so this notion that they, they just got this call out of the blue is, is completely contrary uh, to what we have seen in the documents themselves. Right. The, the comments made and the testimony of all of the players that we've seen stands in stark contrast to reality. And the, the idea, this, this line they kept repeating about sticking their hand up and, you know, stepping up uh, for Canada um, you know, look, they, they decided to, um, to cash in on uh, the favors that were owed them by, they believed, by the Trudeau government. And, uh, and you know, they, they, they got what they wanted. Now, as they said last night uh, in their interview, they, they wished that the prime minister had recused, themself, had recused himself. And same for Bill Morneau. Um, but but they, they entered into this agreement with... Uh, you know, a prime minister twice found guilty of breaking ethics laws. The same one time for the minister of finance, who um, now the former minister of finance, uh, he was found uh, today that to have broken <laughs> elections laws. Like these, these guys are um, they, they've Ethically demonstrated challenged. such a dis- 
the ethically challenged is one way to put it. Yeah, they, they've demonstrated a disregard for the rule of law and for the rules. And, um, you know, and, and anyone doing business with the Trudeau government, you know, ought to beware because uh, Justin Trudeau, um, you know, Mary Dawson, the former ethics commissioner, described it as an ethical blind spot. I just I would just call it a, you know, a, a blatant disregard um, for, you know, for Canadians and, uh, and our democratic institutions. The last batch of documents that uh, the Finance Committee, um, most of them were, you know, colored black. Um, you know, I guess the Prime Minister may have had some extra shoe polish available, but they were blacked out. M- much of them apparently done by someone within the circle of the Prime Minister's office, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. Um, the documents that you're requesting or have asked, uh, and we, as I understand, is obliged to hand over now, how do you know they won't accidentally fall in some paper shredder? I mean, how are they going to be protected? No, this is the this is the question, and we wrote um, to the uh, Library of Parliament. We we asked uh, to ensure that uh, there had been uh, no permission given, and that uh, for documents to be destroyed, and that documents were proactively preserved on the government side. And with respect to um, the you know private citizens and uh, and organizations who have uh, you know documents requested of them, you know it, it's incumbent on them to do. The right thing, and so committees, um, committees, you know, Parliament is supreme. I, I would say, and and so when we have uh, bona fide requests for documents, um, it, you know, folks uh, ought to he ought to heed the order of a committee. And now we've heard today, um, you know, that the that the Kielbergers are willing to provide it, but um, you know, every every player involved, whether it's Speaker Spotlight, uh, the We Organization or the Trudeau government have gone to great lengths to rag the puck and make sure that information doesn't get out in front of Canadians in hopes that people would lose interest. But, you know, this this is a, a half a billion dollar uh, black eye doesn't heal very quickly. Yeah, and I covered the gas plant trial um, every single day. So I remember how easy it is to make things disappear. It's a double control delete. Make sure you back that up. I mean, there are ways to make things not come out. And so, you know, at some point you wonder how are these things going to be protected? Um, But, you know, as I understand now that the charity side is shut down in Canada, and I'm not sure why they can go on in other countries, uh, uh, you know, if they have all these financial implications. I mean, the CRA then can't in investigate uh, anymore because it's it's gone. Um, do we know if the RCMP have, um, you know, responded to your request? I mean, they were poking around, but is there any notion that there might be an investigation actually in the works? Uh, well, we haven't um, heard that there is not an investigation. And so um, that that leaves the, the, uh, the matter very much an open question, and they won't confirm for us until um, uh, until that investigation is ongoing. And so at this point, we don't have that answer, but we'll continue to relay information uh, to the commissioner. And uh, if they deem it appropriate, they will undertake an investigation. But that's why it's so important, Alex, that we uh, continue the process at committee, because uh, in, spite of the, in spite of that referral to the RCMP, these processes can take a long time. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Parliament Hill isn't the only, um, isn't the only political place involved in this and so uh, we need to make sure that um, we need to make sure that there's accountability and that there's transparency this information uh, doesn't just get investigated and dropped into uh, into a, a file folder in a, in a drawer and locked away or, or dropped into a shredder uh, as was the case in the gas plant scandal we need 
um, we need to you know shine the let the sun shine in and show Canadians uh, what happened here. That the best outcome for Justin Trudeau, um, he believes, is an election where before Canadians get the get the facts, um, they have to go back to the polls and 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 make a decision. And uh, I believe that uh, the best case for Canadians is always to have the full story uh, before they um, before they go to the polls. Right. And so, you know, as of September 23rd, I mean, we could find ourselves with that decision. I mean, is is your is your government, is your government, your party, um, you know, willing to support a, an ideologically left uh, recovery plan um, in order to, to keep them um, in government so you can continue to probe this? Or is it better to go to the polls and just say, you know, let's get a better recovery plan? Well, we don't know. And, and here's the thing. <laughs> Uh, early on in this pandemic, we heard this was the Team Canada approach that we were going to have from from the government. And you know what? To uh, just, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. There were calls. There were there were collaboration with shadow ministers and uh, and ministers' offices. That is all over. Um, it is radio silence um, as of uh, as of earlier today. Um, there had been no uh, no contact, no request for input on the throne speech from the government. From the uh, with, with the opposite any of the opposition parties, so we have no idea what's going to be in there. Um, so we're going to have to, you know, take a look at it. But I mean, it's uh, it, it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to say the least. That uh, that you know, I think that Justin Trudeau's playing. Um, he's you know he's he's playing a pretty dangerous game of chicken with um, with our democracy, with the Canadian economy, and uh, and we're going to have to uh, take a look at what he puts on offer. Uh, on September 23rd and, and make a decision. Just quickly, uh, would, would the Kielbergers and Bardish Chegger be called back again if, if the uh, committee meets? Well, we're going to need to see the rest of that information uh, yeah. that the Kielbergers and their organization um, have, have once again committed to providing but have yet to provide. We need the documents that were redacted by the government uh, against the committee's order. We need those unredacted and documents from organizations like Speaker Spotlight um, and, and and further documents from the government to be released. So those will be ordered by committee. Once we have a look at the full unredacted uh, truth, then there may be, uh, it may be necessary to call back uh, witnesses who've already testified, and, um, and we won't hesitate to do that if it's necessary. Stay tuned. All right, Mr. Barrett, appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much. Have a good night. That is Michael Barrett, who is the uh, ethics critic on this thing. So we'll wait and see. 23rd should be an interesting day. When is that? It's like... What? After, uh, yeah, just a week and a half away. Well, today marks World Prevention Suicide Day, and it's part of a campaign called Not Suicide, Not Today. And it was created by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health to raise awareness about this issue. And, you know, we talk about mental health a lot now and a lot more openly than I think we ever have before. And yet I was startled to kind of see these numbers, 4,000 Canadians killing themselves every year, which tells us that people still very much feel that they can't get help or are still ashamed to ask. And four years ago, Senator Patrick Brazo almost became one of those stats after years of a very public struggle that all played out in the news, and that's when he tried to take his life and would end up in a coma, all because he was afraid to ask for help. He did get that help, and he has turned his life around, and he joins us now. Senator Brazo, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Good evening, Alex. How are you? Well, I reached out to you because I saw your tweet on this, and I mean, 
it's not a nice issue to talk about. Uh, it's a tough issue to talk about. And, and you have talked about it very publicly. Um, and, and your situation played out very publicly. Um, let, let's go back before we get to where you are now in your life by starting out at that moment when you decided you felt it was the end. What brought you to that point? Well, look, uh, the the uh, the time that I uh, tried to uh, commit suicide uh, dates back to four years ago, and so uh, that was in uh, 2016. And at that time, I essentially and basically uh, hit rock bottom. I, as you know, mm-hmm. I was suspended uh, from the Senate without pay. Uh, I had uh, I had charges brought upon me by the RCMP for. Uh, for issues dealing with um, with my primary residence and and whatnot, and at the end of the day, those ended up being false charges. But uh, but I had to live with those for almost three years. And uh, uh, as you said, uh, it was uh, it was in the media uh, day in and day out, and uh, it was very difficult to, to cope with. And so um, a lot of people will say that you know the media uh, are always after politicians, but at the same time. Uh, we are human beings. We do have families. Uh, we do have uh, children to take care of. And uh, obviously, it's not fun to always have your name in the paper. But I've taken responsibility for uh, for some of the decisions and the poor decisions that I made at that time on a personal level. Uh, but uh, today, uh, four years later, uh, I, I'm proud to be able to have shared uh, the message that there is hope, uh, and uh, because there is. Uh, and oftentimes, it's it's just a a, a gesture of reaching out to somebody, whether uh, they are complete strangers or not, because I, mm-hmm. I truly feel that uh, there's always somebody ready and willing to help when, when people are in need. And I was in need. I got the help. And um, it's an ongoing struggle, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm well-grounded uh, today. Right. And we talk about, you know, let's talk, but that was not afforded to you. In fact, you became almost a punchline uh, for people. And it, it, it was a contradictory to, to how we talk about things. And yet the actions were so much different. But, you know, when you awoke from that coma, when you realized, I guess, at, at some point you were going to get a second chance, um, how were you able to get back on your feet and finally ask for that help? Well, uh, I've mentioned this before uh, previously, uh, but uh, essentially when I did wake up from the coma, uh, the doctor that had um, uh, did the uh, operation uh, on my neck uh, basically sat down at my bedside and we and he he decided to uh, to talk to me. And uh, so we had a very good chat and I just, uh, you know, I I just found it uh, pretty amazing that a doctor would take. Uh, you know, 20, 25 minutes of, of his time just to sit and, and have a chat about uh, about all the positives in life and about how lucky I was to have uh, survived the surgery. Uh, and so I just uh, broke down crying at, uh, at my bedside and uh, I asked for help. And uh, he quickly got me that help. And it's been a, a long and tough uh, journey uh, since then. Um, and the struggles uh, may never uh, fully go away, but... Uh, you know, I'm certainly, like I said, I'm, I'm certainly happy. I'm, I'm well surrounded by, by family and friends and my, my immediate family, obviously. Uh, you know, things are, are getting back on track uh, work-wise. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been working on uh, introducing a motion in the Senate for a Senate committee to study the issues of mental health uh, and suicide prevention because, 
you know, it's nice to have uh, days like these where we acknowledge that suicide is a problem. Uh, but after that day uh, comes and goes, mm-hmm. oftentimes we, we hear complete silence. And so, yeah. uh, you know, perhaps it's because I have experience in this and I take this uh, to heart and I, I've lived through it. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of these suicides are, are needless. And so if we all start talking about it and, and not just talk about it, but actually act upon it, because it is parliamentarians that, that need to act in particular to uh, to uh, reduce those numbers and to, to afford help for people who need it. And I'm just one voice, but I'm certainly uh, making it uh, strong and loud because uh, people uh, deserve the help uh, if they are going through uh, ongoing struggles. I mean, and you have rebuilt your life. I mean, you, you've got a, a beautiful young child, uh, remarried. I mean, you're back in the Senate, you're working on things, um, and you've you've come back from a, a, a very big fall. And I, I think there is, uh, and I'm not discounting uh, women, but I do think it is probably harder for men to, to ask for help. Uh, but there's no question we have issues. And, and certainly this pandemic um, and the data that we are seeing is showing that a lot of people are struggling. And I think, um, you know, with the economic hit that is in front of us, there are going to be an awful lot of people that uh, that need help. Um, do you get the sense that the the federal and provincial governments are, are moving fast enough to, to make sure that there are supports in place? Uh, as of now, I don't believe that uh, any level of government is, is um, doing uh, what should be done. Obviously, uh, you know, different uh, provincial governments and the federal government have targeted funds for mental health, for example. Uh, but but there there is you know like the old cliche says, there's much more to be done, but. It's interesting that you mentioned issues about men because mm-hmm. uh, as soon as I came back uh, uh, in my office back in 2016, uh, we slowly undertook uh, some research and a study on uh, issues of suicide prevention and mental health. And uh, it showed us that 75% of suicides are committed by, by men. And rates of suicide with the Indigenous populations are three times higher than than non-Indigenous Canadians. And here, here's one thing that I, I wasn't aware as an Indigenous person, is that our Arctic communities, the Inuit people, uh, have one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And, and we are in Canada. And there are many reasons for that uh, that are highlighted in the research that we conducted. Uh, and th- that led me, you know, that, that brought back a little bit of uh, fire in my belly to to try and do something about it, because it's it's as an Indigenous person and as a, as a proud Canadian, uh, I find this uh, unacceptable. And so, like I said, I'm one voice. Uh, you know, I'm trying to garnish support uh, both in the House of Commons and with my Senate colleagues to, to, uh, to do something about this. Um, uh, but uh, things, things are, are not moving uh, as quickly as I would like them to be. But uh, as soon as uh, Parliament reconvenes, I will be reintroducing uh, the motion that I had introduced uh, last year. Well, at some point in this country, uh, for policymakers, they're going to have to put their talk into walk because uh, we are moving too slow on this. And I'm I'm concerned, uh, just given on the stories that I hear on a daily basis of businesses folding and people struggling, uh, you know, as families get ripped apart, that that we're going to start to see some really, really disturbing uh, numbers. But do you get the support you need now, Senator? Um, and, And are people kinder to you? And do you think they've learned from your experience? Well, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly think that uh, there is some growing support out there, 
from, from my colleagues. I'm not going to talk about the, the House of Commons, but in terms of the Senate, uh, there, there has been some growing support to, to move forward with this. Um, and so that, that's, uh, at least that's a, you know, really a, a positive note, because I must say that once I did return to the Senate, uh, there were some mixed feelings, and uh, those mixed feelings from my colleagues um, uh, were certainly because of a lack of information as to exactly uh, what had transpired with, with my suspension and other senators' suspensions. Uh, but, uh, but there is growing support, and uh, you know, I, I, work, I work very hard every day to, to try and garnish uh, uh, people's support and, and trust uh, because one thing that I am, uh, I may be many things, but one thing that I am is I, I, I'm as honest as they come. And uh, what you see is what you get with me. It's always been that way. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's certainly um, worthwhile to, to, uh, to try and garnish that support because, because it's needed. And it's just like people contemplating suicide. We, we, we need help and we, we cannot do everything alone. And, and this is, is highlighted in the research that we did as well because many men... Uh, growing up, are taught to be to be tough. Uh, taught to, are taught to keep their emotions inside and and not show emotion. And sometimes, when when you when, as a man, when when we keep things bottled up inside, uh, you know, when when situations uh, negative situations happen, uh, you know, we lash out and and you know, some people uh, lose their heads. And so we have to 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 tackle this issue. And that was part of my motion was to look at suicide prevention, but to have a particular emphasis on men and boys and how they are socialized and have an emphasis as well uh, with our indigenous population. Well, I appreciate so much uh, for you being uh, with me and, and sharing your story and speaking out on this. And I'm absolutely uh, open to uh, keeping the spotlight on that and having you back if you, if you need to give this a good push. And I, I very much appreciate your time. Well, I thank you very much for reaching out and for inviting me on your show. And uh, I will certainly keep you informed of uh, next steps. And I just want to say uh, uh, good evening and uh, to to uh, to all your uh, your listeners. Senator Brazo, thank you very much. We'll have you back. Thank you, Alex. There you go. A very personal story, and uh, you know, look, Senator Brazo went went through hell and back. Uh, you know, and uh, and it wasn't very pretty. So if we're going to say let's talk and we're going to be about supporting people, then you actually have to follow through with it. You got to put your politics aside and actually help people because there are a number of people. I hear from them every single day. I get personal notes from people who feel like they're absolutely alone out there, have nothing and uh, are, are concerned about what they're going to lose. And so, you know, we've got to stop talking about it and start actually doing something about it. Well, it was supposed to be a fun way to tell the world if the baby would be a boy or a girl, and instead a gender reveal event in California started a massive wildfire that's uh, burned well over 10,000 acres of forest, still burning, only 19%, I guess, contained. And that's because when mom and dad decided to light this explosive device, it ended up igniting the tinder dry grass. And these gender reveals used to be kind of simple. You know, you've got a cake, you cut the cake, and it was either pink or blue. But now they've turned into these elaborate and somewhat risky events that also, you know, kind of involve these explosive devices. And often they're going wrong, which is why the woman who invented the whole idea is saying, stop. Her name, Jenna Myers Carvundis, and she joins us from California. Good to have you, uh, Jenna. Nice to have you. 
Thank you. And you yourself, you're dealing with a, a, a separate fire, not the El Dorado fire, which was ignited by that uh, device, but you got your own fire that's kind of nipping right at your door. Yes, I was actually woken up last night at about 2.30 just with the smell of smoke in here. Um, it's, oh, it's so suffocating, but there's actually two fires that are burning at the same time. And the one that's near me, El Dorado is also near me too, but the one that's actually in my backyard is the Bobcat fire, which is of unknown origin. So who knows? That could have been a gender reveal too, right? We don't we don't actually know about that one. We don't know, but you know, you would think it would take a bit of common sense, especially in that particular region, which has always been uh, really plagued by tinder dry uh, situations and drought. And yet they go out and before you know it, this thing goes off and lights a fire. And you, you know, you wonder where's the common sense gone these days? Exactly. The first time we had one of these gender reveal explosions causing a forest fire, we were all shocked. Oh my gosh, how could this be? I'm sure they were well-meaning, blah, blah, blah. It's not a surprise anymore. No one has the excuse of being shocked anymore. They need to be more responsible with what they're doing. Right. And you, I mean, you're the creator of this thing back in 2008 or nine. I mean, you came up with the idea of a nice, cute way to, to surprise everybody with gender. And, and it's turned into a totally different, different animal now. Yeah, I want to definitely make sure that I were clear. I didn't light anything on fire. I had no, no, no. explosions. <laughs> I had a cake. There wasn't even a candle on the cake. It was a cake. And it was in the backyard. It was like 10 people, just our you know family and in-laws and stuff like that. Um, and I was an early adapter to social media. And I don't know if anybody was around back then, but in the early 2000s, if you had a blog, it was more of a, an online diary. You were not creating content for other people. I was definitely not considering my audience whenever I made my post. I was just sort of documenting what I'm doing. And uh, if other people were interested, great. And I had quite a following by 2008. So um, the post was then picked up by a magazine and they did a two page spread of the gender reveal party, which wound up being in um, the magazine that was the free magazine in the OBGYN offices in the Midwestern region of the United States. So that's how the party spread and got around, but the origins of it were, were nothing like what's happening today, no. When did it start turning into kind of a, you know, adding in lights and bells and whistles and, oh yeah, sparks? I think it's dovetailed with social media. Um, as a platform, they reward content creators who have more likes. If you have more of a reach, a bigger audience, there is financial incentive now to make big, bigger and bigger spectacles of things. Um so, you know, in that regard, I, I think the social media platforms are a bit responsible. But at the same time, with the, the rise of social media, there has also been such a political division in our country, in the U.S., um, which is where most of this happens, where I feel like a generation ago, um, we weren't considering gender in the same way. But now that we're trying to be more inclusive of people on the gender spectrum, transgender, non-binary, as that comes to light, there are people digging in their heels to push back on that and really emphasizing this huge dichotomy with the boy versus girl. And that's kind of where I think the gender reveal thing now, it's completely on the other spectrum of myself. Personally, there are people who are like, boys are boys and girls are girls. And it's like celebrating the boys with these big explosions and the dad with the baseball bats or the burnouts with the tires and the alligators and all this stuff. And it's like, and then the, the girl side of the cakes are like tutus and tiaras. And it's just, it's a, it's a real mess with a lot of different factors. Yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, we can kind of laugh about it. And you see them on the gag video shows where they go terribly wrong and sometimes they go off and hit the mom to be and whatever. And I mean, they have had actually really catastrophic results. I mean, uh, in October of 2019, there was a grandmother uh, killed at one of these parties when they, I, they built a pipe bomb because apparently that's a good idea. It went off and she got hit with a piece of shrapnel. But there have been other incidents. You mentioned a, a forest fire, fire that was ignited. Then, but there have been many of these kinds of incidents where things go really, really wrong. Absolutely. And um, there's been some confusion also that like when people want to talk to me about the dangers and the spectacles and you know the grandmother dying and stuff like that you know they're kind of coming at me like and you thought of the, again with the cake I don't really see how the two are related I mean um people obviously care more about their families than they do likes on the internet I think everybody can pretty much agree with that I think people aren't making the connection between their their behaviors online and the potential outcome they think oh that that's going to happen to somebody else that that was that one person that's not going to happen to me that is not a good advice for any facet of life. If it can happen to somebody, it can happen to you. So um, the aggressive energy that's being attached to uh, the gender reveal parties, I think it's it's putting an undue importance on the, the, the sex of the baby. Um, and I think the parties can be done in a more productive way. And obviously, since this latest fire, which still continues to burn, um, you know, and the, and the people that, uh, you know, ignited it could very well face millions in fines or jail. Uh, it's prompted you to speak out because the initial idea was cute and pretty harmless. But uh, you have spoken out about this and, and um, find yourself kind of in spotlight telling people, like, chill, stop. Absolutely. Uh, this I started speaking out against the gender reveal parties a little over a year ago. Um, it was during one of the other disasters that happened and somebody on Twitter was like, that's it. You know, the tide started to turn against these gender reveal parties. I had mostly stayed out of it. I retired my blog long ago because I didn't like it that I had so many details of my kids online. I started to kind of have a different approach to, uh, to blogging into social media at that time. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't really take my opportunity to speak out about it until somebody actually found me on Twitter and, and remembered my content. And so I've kind of seen it as a little bit of a gift now that, you know, okay, yeah, I did uh, have this original party. It was a whole thing back then, but now I'm able to speak out against it because I think there are many layers of harm that come with it. I never want to shame anybody for having a party. I mean, I'm, life is long and hard and to capture a moment of joy when you can with a piece of cake, you know, do it. Use the good china. Get out your champagne on a Tuesday for no reason. That's kind of my attitude about life. But um, when it comes to the gender reveal party in particular, there are physical harms to it, I think, that are very obvious now at this point that we can see. But there's also some social harm in there, too. Um, getting into, you know, again, with the, the LGBTQ plus rights and things like that, it, you know, not everybody fits on the spectrum and it reinforces this sort of rigid binary and that really affects all of us. I mean, I'm the type of person who doesn't go around wearing pink tutus. I wasn't really as a kid either. I wore a tie in sixth grade. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, but I mean, I'm heteronormative for the, the you know, whatever that means. But uh, so I think it affects a lot more people than you think. I think that sort of damaging uh, socially there is something to think about too, along with the physical harms. And there's just so many better ways to have parties. You know, you could have a name reveal. I'm pretty sure okay. everybody's going to know what kind of equipment Bob has in his pants, you know, I mean, <laughs> make, <laughs> but, it, make it more about the person than, you know, the, the parts. 
And there are also a lot better things to do with your time than trying to get clicks and likes on uh, social media. I hope one day people start to realize that, but for now, it's uh, we'll see where this one takes us. And I know you're dealing with your own kind of evacuation orders and you keep watching to see where the smoke goes. So I appreciate you giving us your time today. Stay safe and we'll see where this one takes us. Thank you okay, for joining stay us, Jenna. Safe. Thank you. You do. Jenna Myers Carvunda is now speaking out about something she created for fun, which is just kind of just over the top. That is your podcast for today. Remember, you can join us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 on point. I'm Alex Pearson.